0: I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. See the music. Hear the dance. This phrase encapsulates the magic of New York City Ballet. It's one of the most famous quotes of George Balanchine, the visionary choreographer who founded New York City Ballet. This idea of bodies visualizing music through high-definition dancing was foundational to what he created, and it transformed the art of ballet. In these Hear the Dance episodes of the City Ballet podcast, we will take an in-depth look at the history and current performance practice of the ballets in our company's vast repertory. During each Lincoln Center season, we'll release two to three episodes related to pieces the company is performing at that particular time. We will hear from current dancers, ballet masters, stagers, and key voices from the company's past. I'll be your host. It's my hope that whether you're completely new to the world of ballet, or whether you've been deeply invested in it for years, that you'll be able to learn from and be inspired by what you hear on this podcast. Ballet is about creativity, collaboration, athleticism, and artistry, so there's something here for everyone. Our first two episodes will be an overview of New York City Ballet history, from the birth of its two founders, George Balanchine and the arts patron Lincoln Kirstein, through to the present day. These episodes will provide the context for our whole season together. We'll only have time to touch on the main events and the big ideas, so please consult the reading list in the notes for these episodes for even more in-depth perspectives. That said, our time today will be dense with information, but it will be rich. So buckle up for an exhilarating ride. The New York City Ballet story begins with a vision, Lincoln Kirstein's vision of an American ballet company. Born in Rochester, New York on May 4, 1907, Boston raised and Harvard educated, Kirstein was a man of prodigious intellect and multifaceted artistic interests. He once wrote, I've always been chronologically in luck. He seemed to consistently find himself in the right place at the right time. He fell in love with ballet at the age of 12 after seeing the renowned Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova perform in Boston on one of her American tours. His fascination with ballet intensified when he saw performances of Sergei Diaghilev's Ballet Rus in London. In their fusion of world-class choreography by Bronislava Nijinska and Leonid Massine, music by Igor Stravinsky and Sergei Prokofiev, and designs by Pablo Picasso and Henri Matisse, these Ballet Russe performances provided Lincoln with a compelling model for the kind of interdisciplinary artistic collaboration that he would champion for years to come in the United States. In August of 1929, Kirstein unwittingly wandered into Diaghilev's funeral service in Venice, where Kirstein was conducting research for his Harvard Senior Dissertation on the Painter El Greco. I've always thought of that moment of the young Kirstein happening upon Diaghilev's funeral as a mystical passing of the torch from one towering artistic impresario to another. Kirstein got chronologically lucky again in 1933. When he met the young George Balanchine, who at that time was completing his stint as choreographer for a company called Les Ballets 1933. George Balanchine was born Georgi Melitanovich Balanchivadze in St. Petersburg, Russia, on January 22, 1904. It was Sergei Diaghilev who would later change the name to what Diaghilev deemed the more pronounceable George Balanchine. And years later, his dancers would abbreviate his name even further, calling him simply Mr. B. His family was Georgian. The son of a composer, Balanchine received his formal training in the ballet division of St. Petersburg's Imperial Theatre School. Interestingly, he did not take to ballet at first, and even ran away from the ballet school during his first days there. He would later recall... I was certain that I had no aptitude for dancing and was wasting my time and the czar's money. All that would change a year later when the 10-year-old Balanchine had the vocation-affirming experience of performing in Marius Petipa's Sleeping Beauty. Balanchine would later say, thanks to Sleeping Beauty, I fell in love with ballet. I think that this first on-stage experience is why Balanchine would later entrust children with such important choreography in his ballets. He knew it could change their lives. Balanchine's studies were interrupted by the outbreak of the Bolshevik Revolution. He went on to graduate from the now state-affiliated ballet school and joined the ballet troupe of the newly fashioned State Academic Theater for Opera and Ballet. He also received further musical education at the Petrograd Conservatory of Music. Balanchine choreographed on his fellow dancers from the State Ballet Company and eventually left Russia for good with a small group of them in 1924. He soon after received an invitation from Diaghilev to audition for the Ballet Rus. Diaghilev was in need of a choreographer. The 21-year-old Balanchine was the man for the task. It was in Diaghilev's service that Balanchine honed his craft, making choreography for operas as well as enduring ballets like Apollo, the collaboration with Igor Stravinsky that Balanchine would later describe as the turning point in his life, and Prodigal Son to the music of Prokofiev. It is because of Diaghilev that I am whatever I am today, Balanchine would say later in his life. After Diaghilev's death in 1929, the Ballet Russe disbanded, and Balanchine worked for a time choreographing reviews in London and as a guest ballet master and choreographer for Copenhagen's Royal Danish Ballet. He then served for a brief time as ballet master for the revived Ballet Russe, then based out of Monte Carlo, until that theater's director replaced Balanchine with the then better known dancer and choreographer Leonid Massine. It was under these circumstances that Balanchine became engaged as ballet master and choreographer for the one season only Les Ballets 1933. And it was during Miss Company's London season, in the summer of 1933, that Balanchine and Lincoln Kirstein met. It was destiny. Kirstein had the vision for an American ballet company, and the necessary connections. Balanchine had the essential artistic genius, and, due to the bleak prospects for him to be able to continue working in Europe at that time, he also had the willingness to come to the United States, to partner with Kirstein in the realization of that vision. Upon meeting Balanchine, Kirstein wrote home to his friend Chick Austin, then director of the Wadsworth Athenaeum, an art museum in Hartford, Connecticut, to see if Chick might help him raise the money to bring Balanchine to America. And I'll say, even before I start reading, that this letter is everything. It sets the stage for all the history that unfolds from this point. July 16th, 1933, Bats Hotel, Dover Street, London. Dear Chick, this will be the most important letter I will ever write you as you will see. My pen burns in my hand as I write. Words will not flow into the ink fast enough. We have a real chance to have an American ballet within three years' time. When I say ballet, I mean a trained company of young dancers, a company superior to the dregs of the old Diaghilev company. Do you know George Balanchine? He is personally enchanting, a superb dancer, and the most ingenious technician in ballet I have ever seen. He is 28 years old, a product of the imperial schools. He has split with the Prince of Monaco as he wants to proceed with new ideas and young dancers instead of going on in the decadence of the Diaghilev troupe. I have proposed the following, to have a school of dancing, preferably in Hartford. It is distant from New York, plenty of chance to work in an easy atmosphere. For the first, he would take four white girls and four white boys, about 16 years old, and eight of the same, Negroes. They would be taught in the classical ballet idiom, not only from exercises, but he would start company ballets at once, so they would actually learn by doing. It would be necessary to have $6,000 to start. He believes the future of ballet lies in America, as do I. It will not be easy. It will be hard to get good, young dancers willing to stand or fall by the company. No first dancers, no stars, a perfect esprit de corps. Balanchine is an honest man, a serious artist, and I'd stake my life on his talent. He could achieve a miracle and right under our eyes. I feel this chance is too serious to be denied. It will mean a life work for all of us. It will not be a losing proposition. We have the future in our hands. For Christ's sweet sake, let us honor it. Yours devotedly, Lincoln. That's just astounding. It's all there. In this one letter, Lincoln Kirstein articulated at least five foundational ideas of the American ballet tradition that he and Balanchine would establish. You can think of these five ideas as the pillars of the Balanchine-Kirstein vision. One, the interdependent relationship of a training school to their performing company. Two, the idea that ballets themselves could be teachers, that there could be a unique continuity between classroom training in ballet technique and that technique's application in the performance of new choreography. Three, the idea of a company of interchangeable soloists where the only star was the choreography itself. Four, the idea that such a company, where choreography is the centerpiece, demands a new type of repertory, not beholden to the conventions of the past. And five, the idea that the realization of this vision would require a lifestyle of service from its participants. These five big ideas will permeate our entire exploration of the New York City Ballet story. Now back to the narrative. Chick Austin came through with the money that was needed, and Balanchine came to America. Certain aspects of Lincoln's plan didn't end up taking the exact shape he'd outlined, like the ultimate choice of New York City over Hartford as their base, and the unrealized hope of an equal number of black and white students. I think that part is fascinating. As one of the current dancers of color in New York City Ballet, I love knowing that my presence here is not a novel idea. I'm embodying part of the original plan. It is astonishing to note what of Kirstein's plan did come to fruition under his and Balanchine's leadership. By January of 1934, they had established a school, the School of American Ballet, SAB, where students were being taught in the classical idiom. Kirstein wrote, The School of American Ballet has been founded for one purpose only, to provide dancers as well-trained as any other technician, whether it be surgeon, architect, or musician. And now, more than 80 years later, those qualities of precision and keen musicality are still the defining features of SAB training. And no sooner had the school's doors opened than Balanchine began choreographing for his students. As we proceed through the rest of the New York City Ballet story, we will reflect on a few important ballets. In the same way that these works have taught dancers how to dance, they will teach us about the history of the company. As we dive into the circumstances surrounding the creation and first presentation of these pieces, we will get a glimpse into those particular moments in the company's life. We will start with the ballet Serenade, the first entirely new work Balanchine made in the United States. Set to Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings in C major, Serenade was a kind of lesson for its original dancers, all of whom were SAB students. Balanchine's motivations for the piece were to refine and display his New American students' technique and to teach them how to perform. He would later write, It seemed to me that the best way to make students aware of stage technique was to give them something new to dance, something they had never seen before. He also had before him the task of smelting together some kind of uniformity of dance style between his students, who came from disparate previous ballet training. In Serenade, the curtain rises on 17 women, because that's how many were in the class the night Balanchine began the piece. And he continued to make a virtue of necessity throughout the entire choreographic process, using whomever happened to show up at each rehearsal. For example, when a few men showed up, he made some basic partnering moves for them to dance with the ladies. He also worked unexpected rehearsal moments into the choreography, extending an accident into a moment of drama, when a woman fell when one of the dancers arrived late to the rehearsal. Kirstein wrote, Serenade was thus woven from chance. The ballet premiered on June 10, 1934, in White Plains, New York, at the home of the Warburgs, who were family friends of Kirstein. The performance took place on a makeshift stage on the Warburgs' lawn. The intended premiere, scheduled for the previous night, had been rained out. The performance went well enough, but not without its share of drama with regard to the rescheduling of the performance and the hasty assembly of enough food and refreshments for the unexpected second night of audience members. Worn out from the whole endeavor, Kirstein wrote, A more agonizing and inauspicious occasion could scarcely have been planned by the devil himself. And yet that is how the performance of Balanchine's ballets in America began. Serenade would later come to be considered a masterpiece and recognized for its role in transposing the European art of classical ballet to an American context. But it is important for us to remember its humble beginnings and how very little in those early days of Balanchine and Kirstein's work would have portended their eventual achievements. The years that followed saw Balanchine and Kirstein forming and reforming a series of small ballet companies. In 1935 they formed their first company, the American Ballet, which became engaged to perform under the auspices of the Metropolitan Opera. Highlights of that Met Opera stint include a production of Gluck's opera Orpheus and Eurydice with surrealist designs by Pavel Chelychev and a festival of ballets to music by Stravinsky. In 1936, Kirstein founded Ballet Caravan with the mission of developing ballets on expressly American themes with American composers, choreographers, and designers. The company lived up to its name, making cross-country tours and taking ballet to places where it had never been seen before. This company produced two notable works. One was called Filling Station, about the day in the life of a gas station attendant named Mack. The other was Billy the Kid, about the infamous outlaw of the old American West that was set to Aaron Copland's iconic score. There's a review that I find so funny from when the company performed this in South America. And the critic praised the dancer playing Billy as being, quote, better than John Wayne. Isn't that great? In all of this, Lincoln was realizing his hope for interdisciplinary artistic collaboration in a distinctly American key. During those years of Kirstein's Ballet Caravan, Balanchine was busy choreographing on Broadway and in Hollywood. It was while working on the Broadway show On Your Toes that he asked the show's producer to change his credit in the playbill from Dances by George Balanchine to Reading Choreography by George Balanchine. The producer obliged, and thus Balanchine introduced an unfamiliar word to the American theater-going public. Choreography. Balanchine and Kirstein merged the American Ballet and Ballet Caravan into American Ballet Caravan for a 1941 Goodwill Tour of Latin America. The multi-month tour was especially significant because Balanchine created two of his masterworks for it, Concerto Barocco, set to Bach's Double Violin Concerto, and Ballet Imperial, set to Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 2. These two ballets would become enduring pieces of the New York City Ballet repertory. Each is worth our consideration, because each demonstrates some of those original big ideas from Kirstein's letter to Chick Austin. In Concerto Barocco, we see music and hear dance. The work is cast for two ballerinas who show us the sounds of the first and second solo violins, and they're supported by a corps de ballet, the French term for the dance chorus or ensemble, that is made up of eight women who provide the visualization of the orchestral accompaniment. Those eight women do not leave the stage for the entire ballet, and they are in almost perpetual motion. The first movement and third movement are brisk, brilliant, and packed with steps. The second movement is a soaring pas de deux, a duet for the first violin ballerina, and a man who appears only for that one section to partner her. In Concerto Barocco, we see that foundational Kirstein Balanchine idea of a company of interchangeable soloists. The eight women dance comparably difficult, and perhaps even more difficult, choreography than the principal dancers. The baseline level technique for the core in a Balanchine ballet is higher than what was expected of any other core before. For Balanchine, the core dancers didn't stand on the sidelines as a decorative frame for a star performer. They danced. Ballet Imperial, the other key ballet from that tour, shows us another important aspect of the Kirstein-Balanchine vision. The making of a new repertory that, while honoring the past, was not beholden to it. Balanchine and Kirstein had discussed what kinds of ballets they wanted to represent their company to the South American audiences. They felt it was important to show part of the great Russian imperial ballet tradition, of which Balanchine was an heir. But as opposed to dutifully staging one of the pettipa ballets that Balanchine would have remembered from his youth, they decided to have Balanchine make something entirely new, set to music by Tchaikovsky, who had been Petipa's composer and close collaborator on Sleeping Beauty. So Balanchine devised a new ballet to Tchaikovsky's second piano concerto that was both redolent of the Russian imperial ballet, yet was also an appropriate showcase of what his young American dancers could do. Ballet Imperial has all the hierarchical pageantry of a full-length pettipa ballet condensed into just under 40 minutes. It has a large cast, two ballerinas, a male principal, two demi-soloist women, 16 corps de ballet women, and six corps de ballet men. Balanchine's choreography for the concerto's three movements, though pure dance, could be read as a distillation of the three archetypal acts of a storybook ballet. The first movement, like a first act that introduces the full cast of characters. The second movement, like the second act vision scene, think the moon-drenched lakeside in Swan Lake, or the woodland glade in Sleeping Beauty. And the third and final movement, like the final act Divertissement, complete with folk dance-inflected movements and a rousing finale. The original sets and costumes were by Mastislav Dobudzinski and included ermine-trimmed blue curtains that framed a view of St. Petersburg's Peter and Paul fortress. The dancers were clothed in glamorous tutus. Balanchine would later re-envision Ballet Imperial in 1973, renaming it Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto No. 2, replacing its tutus with flowing chiffon dresses and replacing its set with his signature blue backdrop. Balanchine made these changes because he felt that the audience had grown to see dance better and no longer needed lavish designs to direct their eyes. He also joked about the ballet's name change by referencing the hotel across the street from Lincoln Center, saying, There isn't Imperial anymore, only the Empire Hotel. (laughs) Regardless of the designs, the choreography's majesty remained. Balanchine would go on to make several more ballets in this grand imperial manner, all with his own fresh steps, most notably theme and variations and the diamond section of jewels, both also set to orchestral scores by Tchaikovsky. And thus Balanchine provided his American dancers and audiences with their own unique link to his Russian balletic heritage. After the American Ballet Caravan tour, Lincoln Kirstein went on to serve as a monuments man in Patton's Third Army, protecting the great works of Western art from Nazi looting or destruction. And Balanchine went on to serve as ballet master and choreographer for the then New York-based Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. In his two years there with the company, he revived some of his earlier choreography, made new works, and reconfigured its roster of dancers by hiring a number of students from his School of American Ballet. It is important to take note of the role of the School of American Ballet up to this point in the Balanchine-Kirstein story. Beginning in 1934, SAB had provided the dancers for the many companies and projects that Balanchine and Kirstein had led. By this point in the mid-1940s, the school's faculty included masterful former Mariinsky dancers like Pierre Vladimirov and Filia Dubrovska, who was Vladimirov's wife and had originated lead roles in both Apollo and Prodigal Son. The faculty also included Muriel Stewart, a British teacher who had danced with Anna Pavlova. And by that point, there was even one of Balanchine's own original American ballet dancers teaching at the school, Elise Ryman. With this team of teachers, SAB was indeed serving its purpose of providing a pipeline of skillful dancers who could be the instruments and agents of Balanchine and Kirstein's ideas. Thus, in keeping with Kirstein's original letter to Chick Austin, the school had secured the continuity of the vision. In 1946, Kirstein was discharged from the U.S. Army and returned home to New York. Balanchine stepped down from his post at Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo to partner afresh with Kirstein on a new venture, Ballet Society. Unlike their earlier companies that had run as commercial theater operations, Ballet Society would be a subscription-only, non-profit organization that would create and present new ballets and operas, educate audiences, and equip young artists. In its first season alone, this ambitious Ballet Society produced several new operas, ballets, and dance publications. It also funded new dance films and awarded scholarships to promising ballet students. Beginning in November of 1946, Ballet Society presented several of its first performances in the auditorium of New York City's Central High School of Needle Trades, and later performances were presented at the New York City Center of Music and Drama. Ballet Society's animating spirit was that original Kirstein idea about creating a new repertory that was not bound to the past. Since Ballet Society had no responsibility to present the existing canon of ballets or operas, it could instead devote all its energies to the new and the now. The 1948 ballet Orpheus was Ballet Society's defining moment. The collaboration between Balanchine and the composer Igor Stravinsky was at the core of this work. Kirstein considered this composer-choreographer pair to be the greatest such team since Tchaikovsky and Petipa. Balanchine had first worked with Stravinsky during his days as Diaghilev's choreographer. Their epical Ballet Russe work was Apollo, in which both choreographer and composer had drawn inspiration from the classicism of Louis XIV's court. Orpheus was commissioned as a mythological companion piece to Apollo. Both Balanchine and Stravinsky were innovators who had a deep reverence for the past. They were both passionate about precision and order. Neither had any pretensions about creating anything. Indeed, Balanchine famously said, God creates, I assemble what God created. They saw their work more as craftsmanship than creativity. They found freedom within the limitations of time, space, dancers, and instrumentation. Their artistic kinship was evident throughout the development of Orpheus, with the two of them deliberating about the exact number of minutes and seconds a given section of the music should be to tell the particular moment in the story. The ballet tells the story of Orpheus, son of Apollo, who journeys to the underworld to rescue his wife Eurydice. Balanchine cast Nicholas Magallanes as Orpheus, Francisco Mancion as the Dark Angel, and the Native American ballerina Maria Tallchief as Eurydice. The two pas de deux he devised, one for Orpheus and the Dark Angel, and the other for Orpheus and Eurydice, are two demonstrations of a knotted partnering in which the dancers entwine their limbs in mesmerizing and ritualistic ways. That aspect of the choreography was mirrored in the sinewy and spiraling set and costume designs by the Japanese-American artist Isamu Noguchi. Stravinsky himself conducted the ballet's world premiere at New York City Center on April 28, 1948. The ballet was a tremendous success with the audience and also proved to be the watershed moment for Kirstein and Balanchine's company. After seeing the Orpheus premiere, Morton Baum, who was chairman of City Center's executive committee, extended the invitation to Kirstein and Balanchine for their ballet society to change its name to New York City Ballet and to become City Center's resident dance company. This gave the company a permanent home and thus its first real chance of institutional stability. Ballet Society dancer Barbara Milberg-Fisher, who had danced as a fury in that original cast of Orpheus, remembered the night of its premiere and the aftermath like this. Orpheus left the audience shaken. A period of stark silence followed the closing notes, while people recovered themselves and found their hands and voices. That night, it seemed the applause and shouts and bouquets would never stop. I think we sensed right away that Orpheus had done more for our struggling young company than simply overwhelm the opening night audience and critics. That spring season of 1948 marked the point when the company began to be counted as one of the city's major theatrical attractions. We had arrived. On October 11, 1948, New York City Ballet danced its first full performance. The program consisted of three balanchine ballets: Concerto Barocco, Orpheus, and Symphony in C. It was the historic start to what has now been 70 years of New York City Ballet performances. Earlier that same year, a restless and wildly talented dancer and choreographer had attended several performances of the then-Ballet Society. He would later recall how rapturously the company had danced, especially the ballerina Tannicky Leclerc, who was the lead in the second movement of Symphony in C. He was so moved by the experience that he wrote a fan letter to Balanchine that said, I'd like to come work with you, and I'll come as anything you need, anything you want. I can perform, I can choreograph, I can assist you. Balanchine wrote the young man back. Come on. The young man was Jerome Robbins. Here ends part one. The New York City Ballet story continues in part two, which is available now. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater, so head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.